0: As business professionals, we spend money, sweat, time, and worry to get more customers. Well, how about keeping the ones you have? Our guest is one of the world's most popular keynote speakers on customer experience and marketing and the author of a new book, Why Customers Leave and How to Win Them Back. It's David Averin on the Manage Your Message podcast.
1: Welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast, where professionals come for ideas and inspiration to grow by talking about their businesses more effectively and getting lots of other people to do the same. Here is your host, consultant, professional speaker, and author, Jim Carr.
0: Come on in, and thanks for joining us. I'm Jim Carr. Here each week, we discuss three foundational components for growing your business. First, your message, meaning the words, stories, and evidence you want to share. Second, your messengers, the network of people who can help you share that message. And third, management habits that will shape your culture and turn your improvements into an everyday business advantage. We know it's much easier to grow your business when you are a message manager. I first met our guest today at his special session during the National Speakers Association's big annual conference. David Averin was talking about his process for attracting customers. David is himself a big-time keynoter, especially known for speaking about customer experience and marketing. He most typically speaks to business owners and executives, salespeople, HR leaders, and entrepreneurs. He's also a former CEO group leader with Vistage. I spent several years as a Vistage member myself. That's a more intimate setting for peer advisory and deep dives into business issues. So David has a lot of experience on the big stages as well as more tight-knit experiences. David has a new book, Why Customers Leave and How to Win Them Back. I was fortunate to get a review copy. You can uh, hear it right there. And I can definitely recommend it. There's a lot of very practical advice in here. No matter what type of organization you have or the type of customers you want to attract, serve, and keep, then you're in the right place. David Averin, welcome to the Manage Your Message podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to it. So, David, as I mentioned, you in the past have been writing and speaking a lot about customer attraction, customer experience. What prompted you to get into the deep, dark, negative world of customer attrition?
2: You know, it's a, it's a great question, you know, for, uh, you know, you and I have a, a similar background in a way in that we sort of teach marketing, you with a PhD have done it on the educational level. And then through corporate, I've done it through corporate association as well. But what I found in decades of teaching from the platform, working with clients to help them build their business, attract new customers, we can get them in the door. But at that point, it's really up to the business themselves to thrill the customer, to keep the customer. And what I found over the last couple of decades is that there was a frustration level that I was doing a really a, a good job of helping my clients attract new customers. And then they were blowing it. They were screwing it up by, pardon the language, pissing them off in some way. You know, they, we've got organizations, very smart companies, very smart professionals who are very good at creating products and services, great at marketing them, attracting them, And then there's behavioral things within the company, not intentionally. I mean, intentionally in terms of these are our policies and procedures. They're not trying to anger people, but they're so rigid in what they do that they are in turn frustrating. And so I found myself in some of my longer presentations, some of my consulting work, morphing into those discussions. And some of the questions were coming. I found myself sort of deviating from the prepared material because – I had this message that I needed to you know stop getting people to call and then putting them on hold for 45 minutes stop bringing them into the restaurant and then being inflexible about somebody that wants to make a substitution or worse yet don't hope people come into your place and then put a sign up say you can't use our restroom unless you buy something I mean my god be a human being they need to use the bathroom they're not trying to take advantage of you they have to go to the bathroom and so, as I started getting on some of these rants, and I think we could probably safely call them rants, I started collecting material. And as I talked to business owners and others, I got a lot of head nodding, like, oh my gosh, oh, I hate that. Oh my God, don't you hate it when they do that? And somebody of the things I think businesses and business owners and professionals don't realize that it's happening. And so, one of the things I talk about when I talk to audiences as well is I say, listen, the biggest source of lost revenue for your business, for your company, is the prospect. customer, the client that you never knew about, they drove by and they didn't stop, or they came in and they left before they were engaged, or they called on the phone and they hung up because they got frustrated by your voicemail system, or they went to your website, which we want them to do, but they left and they didn't buy anything and they didn't leave their information. And I say, the worst part is you have no idea who those people were or how many of them there were. So I decided to write this book, Why Customers Leave and How to Win Them Back, to shine a light. On some of these behaviors, and I came up with 24, I probably could do another two books with another, you know, 50 or 60 of things that companies are doing that they think are just good business practices, creating a level of predictability, maybe a franchise model, but are in turn frustrating and driving customers into the arms of their competitors. And we're
0: going to peel things back a little bit and see what may be the the genesis of all this, David. And um, just looking ahead, there's a nice structure in your rants. And uh, when you start breaking these behaviors and misguided policies down and telling people why, telling the reader why it's wrong and how to fix it. I noted a couple of things that specific passages from the book. I thought we could riff on these a little bit. Sure. Um, And the one of them is, as you just said, you said, quote, the unfortunate truth is that most of them and you don't realize that you're doing it, end quote. So it's not impugning people's motivations, but I think of this in a There was an article came out last year, I believe it was, in Harvard Business Review. And it was the authors. David, it was really interesting the way they went about it. They had about 27, I think, bigger company CEOs who were part of a Harvard certificate program. And so they enlisted these CEOs, and they got them to share their calendars through their executive assistants. And they were tracking in 15-minute increments how they spent their time over, I think, it was about a three-month period. And then they brought all this stuff together, took a quick look at it, and then they reported back to this group of CEOs. And what they found and what to the horror of the CEOs is they found that on average, those leaders spent about 3% of their time with customers. There was this disconnect. And so it seems like what you're doing here in the book is saying to anyone, even if it's not a big company, is, hey, reflect on your experience as a customer and then help you to see your own business in a different way.
2: You know, I think our primary role in our society and our culture is as a customer, even for those of us who are business owners or senior professionals within organizations, most of our time is actually as a customer. We're going to grocery stores, we're going to restaurants, we're buying things online. And so when I talk about customer experience, when I speak to audiences about customer experience, I make sure I differentiate it from customer service. That's service with a smile. We get all of that. But how do we as customers actually experience doing business Is it facilitated? Is it frustrated? Are there amenities that you don't have that we scratch our heads? What makes you preferable? I mean, somebody asked me, I was doing a a podcast interview and they said, if you were going to boil it down, why do customers leave the title of the book? And I said, if I was going to boil it down to one sentence, they leave because they can, because our choices are vast. And if there's something that you do that is not what we want, I'll I'll give you a quick example, and I think i talk about it in the book as well, is one of the chapters is sometimes you drive us away by the things that you don't have and the things that you don't offer. Because I travel very extensively and I'm at airports all the time. I was at an airport restaurant and I was watching person after person coming to the host station and asking the host or the hostess one question, the one amenity that they all wanted. And that amenity was, do you have an electrical outlet? Do you have a seat, a table with an electrical outlet? Right. Because we want to charge yeah, our phones. Yeah, you got to right? charge my phone. Absolutely. And I heard no over and over. And in almost every case, they left and the next person left. And I'm like five minutes worth of customers could have paid for electrical outlets for the entire restaurant. But that frontline worker, I seriously doubt they were passing that on to management. There was a disconnect. Now, were they giving me bad customer service? Of course not. They were great. But the experience wasn't good for those who were looking for that particular amenity. So what I do is I encourage in my speaking and my consulting work is I work with organizations. I just got back from Abu Dhabi and spent a full day with this corporation that does food products and water and all of these. Admonish them, look at every point of contact along your customer's journey and ask the question, is that the way it should be done? In most cases, the answer is yes because they're good at what they do, but could it be done different or better or faster or more facilitated or more engaging or more memorably? Because at some point it will be and the question is, are we going to scramble to catch up to others in our space or are we going to drive some of those changes? And I think that's the opportunity for businesses is to really look at how they expect business to be done in the next couple of years. I mean, that's how we future-proof our organizations and that customer experience. Too many are dismiss and they think it just means service with a smile or we treat our customers like family. I'm like, really? I see how some of you treat your families. Not always a good thing. (laughs) But customer experience really is looking at how do we experience doing business with you? Here's the disconnect. Because I don't think anybody's intentionally trying to annoy their customers or frustrate them. But what they are trying to do is create a level of predictability in their behavior, it's the franchise model, is if we can have greater predictability in terms of behavior and process, then in turn, we would have greater predictability of process and customer flow and revenue and profits and all the above. But what's missing in that dynamic is flexibility, it's humanity, because not every scenario that we have as customers fits their training. And they think they get this because we say, you know, you need to walk the customer journey. And they do, but they do it wrong. What they do is they have somebody secret shop them and they evaluate every point of contact and all their uh, employees based on their training or their manual or their policy. Did they meet the standard? Did they do what we asked them to do? The problem is, as customers, we have no idea what's in your policy manual. We didn't we're a part of your training. We just know if we liked it or not we just know if we were frustrated because we had to wait on hold for 45 minutes while you continually remind us that our call is very important to you well clearly it's not or you would have staffed your customer service appropriately and so they think that they've got a handle on this because they are walking their journey and they're doing it in a way that's disconnected from what their customers really want there's a blind spot that's there and i for our message
0: manager listeners i was going to and david I pulled out another passage here. Sure. And so it goes like this, as you were just saying, quote, your biggest problem and the chief source of your lost prospects and revenue is not your customer service. It's your ingrained beliefs and desire for operational efficiency, cost savings, and predictability of employee behavior that are driving your customers to your competitors, end quote. And you know, David, I I think you really hit upon a great truth that's there, but in trying to address a lot of these issues, I see, at least in my view, two different sides of the spectrum here in terms of the leadership's reaction to it. Sure. So on the one hand, you can just throw up your hands or just say, hey, if we just hire the right kind of people, then it'll all work out, right? they will be good intention and they have a heart for what they're doing and they have a passion for what they're doing. It'll be fine. But on the other side, and I think this is where it gets skewed more often, is really trying to over-engineer it with getting to increasingly fine-tune oppressive policies that don't allow people there at the front lines with customers to be able to use their humanity and their common sense and their interest in doing the right thing at the time. That's my view. I mean, I think there's a there's something in the middle that's probably best
2: it, You see that from your experience i agree a hundred percent because i don't believe for a minute that businesses leaders within businesses are intentionally being malicious or trying to frustrate they're just striving for some level of predictability their lives are crazy you know you get a multi-billion dollar company and 16 year olds on the front line and they literally pull their hair out because how do we i mean they're so worried they're going to make a bad decision that they don't let them make any decisions. And here's the irony of all of this. Companies go through a pretty exhaustive search process for professionals at every level, whether they're using Monster or Indeed or LinkedIn or whatever else, we look for the right kind of candidate. We interview them, we evaluate them, we check their background and their references. We have conversations in an interview format and we ask them about their background. We ask them about the toughest decision or the toughest situation they've ever encountered. How did you handle that? And then once we finally hire them, we neuter them. Now we say, now follow the policies. And I like the idea of let's empower our workers to make decisions, even at the risk of them making a poor decision. But what we do is we allow for some opportunities, for some flexibility. And I encourage organizations to spend as much time with your people on decision-making as policy quoting And the easy answer for most every scenario is just sorry we don't do that. And what's lost in that is I talk about sort of what I call the five pillars that really define a new customer experience, but one of those is humanity. And I don't say humanity to be touchy-feely, I say humanity that literally treat us like people and you're gonna reap the rewards of that. And I'll give you a couple examples. So here's a simple one. You go to a restaurant, here's a young woman with her friends at a restaurant. She orders a Caesar salad and it's with chicken, but she sees that there's shrimp on the menu. And she says, may, can I substitute shrimp for chicken? And the answer is, oh, sorry, we don't do substitutions. Well, why? They don't do it because the cook doesn't wanna do it. I don't care what the cook wants to do. Your customer wants shrimp, give her shrimp, charge her a few extra bucks. What's the alternative? Is the alternative, not giving her what she wants, then she doesn't come back. And she goes online and rants on Facebook or Instagram about what a jerk you were. We could have thrilled her. Now, the argument I get, and I get it a lot, and I'm ready for it, is it's this slippery slope crap that where they say, if we do it for them, we have to do it for everybody. And I'm like, no, you don't. You only have to do it for the people who ask, if you can. Because most people will never ask for an accommodation. But this is an opportunity to engender this sense of appreciation and loyalty. She will be thrilled if you were able to do it. Because some of the best companies, the Ritz Carlton's or the, the Nordstrom, you know, their answer is always, it would be my pleasure. Absolutely. You call the front desk and say, can you switch me to whatever, or can I get housekeeping? It's never hang on a second, or just, it's it would be my pleasure. And I love Shep Hyken, one of our colleagues, phenomenal speaker on customer service. He has this great admonition. He talks to organizations. He says, your people should never have to ask permission to say yes. They should only have to ask permission to say no. I mean, what a wonderful way of thinking. It doesn't mean that it's always, it's universal, but it's a great mindset. But they're so used to just, we say no, we don't do that. Sorry, walking into a store, sorry, you can't bring a drink in. I'm like, I just paid seven and a half bucks for the Starbucks. I'm 55 years old and 16 year old says, sorry, you can't bring that like, I'm going to spill it on their gap sweaters, <laughs> you know, but these people aren't doing anything wrong. This is what they were told to say, as opposed to sort of fostering this culture of accommodation and humanity. But there is this false narrative within organizations that the minute we start, it's a slippery slope. We're going to have to do it for everybody. And I think there's an opportunity for your listeners, for those in business, to actually gain a competitive advantage by being remarkably easy to do business with. And that, I think, is the core of what customer experience is. You can become preferable by just being remarkably easy to do business with. I mean, there are conscious decisions that companies make to restrict access. And I ask audiences all the time, I say, you ever go to a website? Do you want to call somebody, ask about a product, or maybe you have a concern or something, and you cannot find a phone number anywhere. Now, you realize somebody made a conscious decision that we will not allow our customers to call us. Now, they deluded themselves by saying, oh, we're going to funnel them through our contact form, which is the worst. Your worst employee of any organization is the contact form. It will drive more customers away than your worst employee. It is the answering machine of the internet. Somebody tweet that out, hashtag David Averin. Your contact (laughs) form is the answering machine of the internet. They want us to fill out the form. Look, we're going to funnel everybody to the same place. We might even get some extra information. We can pre-qualify them. When are you looking to buy? Ask them a few questions. It's brilliant. Well, it's not brilliant. You know why? Because we don't want to fill out your form. We wanted to talk to a real person. But you denied us. So you know what I'm gonna do? I'm just gonna call somebody else for one simple reason. Because we can. And you know, David, going
0: back to that scenario, you were speaking about being in the restaurant and asking for a relatively easy substitution. Sure. Yeah. And you know who else? And the frustration that's there of saying, Oh, we you know, we don't make substitutions. You know who else probably doesn't like that encounter? Is the server, right? They don't want to say no. They exactly. don't want to have to parrot back a policy that they probably don't believe in themselves. I I was thinking back. My wife Allison and I we have a here in Little Rock where our home is. There's a restaurant, local restaurant that uh, we've been enjoying for years, even as they have changed locations and we know everyone there. Well, there was a dish that. Allison really enjoyed a while back. And then they changed the menu around. They took it off there. But when we have returned in that very similar sort of scenario, she says, can I get this? I think it's shrimp parisien." And the answer is, if we have the ingredients, of course. So they can go back and just and check and make sure they have the ingredients. Don't want to make a promise you can't keep. But it's also not some sort of overbearing policy, as you said. And, and you put it in the book. I think you said if it's not directly related to health or safety you may not want to put it in a hard and fast policy.
2: Right. Right. Guidelines. I'm a big favor of guidelines instead of policies when available. So I think you're right in terms of frontline people wanting to do the right thing, but too often they're just not allowed to do so because we're so afraid they're going to make a bad decision. We don't let them make any decision. I'll give you a really easy example. So I was walking out of a hotel early in the morning. You had mentioned Vistage before. You remember, I'm a former Vistage leader, but I've also spoken to hundreds of them as well. For those listening, it's a CEO roundtable group, amazing organization, uh, amazing dynamic. It's seven o'clock in the morning. I'm walking out of a hotel to go speak to a meeting. I'm going to speak from about 830 till noon. And I stop at the front desk on the way out. and I say, hi, I'm in room 237. I'm a diamond member. I need to do a late checkout today. She looks at me. She says, oh, I am sorry. We're not doing any late checkouts. And I said, um, "I well, I I, don't, I speak till noon, so I won't be able to be out by noon, but I'm really close. I'm sure I'm going to be back dressed out the door by 1230. And she goes, yeah, we're not doing any late checkouts. I'm so sorry. We have a conference coming in and we need to get the rooms cleaned out. And I said, okay, I'm just telling you, I cannot be back by noon. And she looks at me like with just this agony on her face. She goes, I'm so sorry, but we're going to have to charge you for a second night. And of course, I teach this. So I pause and I say, Okay. So if you're going to charge me for a second night, I'm just not going to check out of the room at all. Legally, if I'm paying for it, I'm just going to keep the room. Now your conference attendee doesn't have a room at all. Is that the outcome you were looking for? And she goes, just a minute. She goes in the back room, talk to her manager. She comes back out 20 seconds later. One o'clock would be fine. Of course it will, (laughs) right? They had restricted her because the easiest thing in the morning was just, listen, we can't do any late checkouts. We got to get everybody. They weren't going to get to every room. And the reality is very few people would ask for it. But managers are dismissive when the reality is most people who ask for an accommodation and the whole book isn't about that. I mean, a, a chapter or two It's because they really need it. So accommodate. There's a whole level of changing expectations and especially among millennials that they want to design it the way they want. They don't want to do business the way you want to do business. In some cases, it makes a lot of sense, right? You go to Chipotle, you order You move to the right, you customize it, you move far to the right and you pay for it. That kind of flow makes sense. But my son, I have a 15-year-old son, he doesn't want to go to the store and buy tennis shoes. He wants to go online and design them because you can, right? Is there an option? Sometimes people say like, you know, can you do overnight delivery or we don't do next day. Well, why? I mean, they can in many cases, just it'll cost more, but yeah, it's a little more work for them. Okay, you know who loves that? Your customers love that. They love it when you will do, when it is, it's my pleasure. And they're even willing to pay extra to get those extra things. But this franchise model, this mindset of predictability is causing companies to be rigid. Customer service faults in yesteryear was just people not treating people the way they should. That part I think they get. Now it's just, we're trying to make it easier for our team. And the pendulum, I think, has swung so far to being employee-centric. And I think you mentioned something at the beginning. We hear this a lot. If we hire the right people, if we treat them well, we treat them with respect, in turn, they're gonna treat our customers great. I don't know that one necessarily predicts the other. I think it can, but we've become so employee-centric that we create policies and procedures to make life easier for our staff. And they shouldn't be easier for our staff. They should be wonderful for our customers. And I'm not suggesting for a minute nobody mishear me. I'm not saying that our employees are not important. They're incredibly important. Hire slowly, hire well, treat your people great. Be clear with your expectations. They will retain your best customers. But how we do business, our policies and procedures are to make life wonderful for our customers. Your employees don't pay the bills. Your employees are the bills. And I know that sounds sacrilegious. Treat your people great, but how you do what you do is for the benefit of your customers.
0: And you know, the reality too, David, is that those policies and procedures, they're kind of like government regulations. They never really go away. They just kind of stack up on top of one another.
2: And some people don't uh, even know why something started. That's just how we do it, right?
0: Yeah, I have uh, in my upcoming book and some of my talks point that out as well, that you get these things, particularly in some in an industry or in an area where it just becomes calcified, uh, almost codified, right. With right. just the way it's been done. And that's not good for customers, not good for your employees all the way around. You speak all over the world, and you speak to associations and corporations and group of small to midsize uh, business professionals. Really, it's a wide array. Is it pretty common across different industries or regions or? Are there some that are more specific, whether you're heavy on the business side or consumer
2: side or big business versus small business? How do you see the patterns there? I'm not seeing patterns. What I am seeing patterns is I think there's a growing understanding and appreciation for this aspect of it. You know, you can say in the B2C world, customers are us, right? We're becoming more impatient. The market is changing. It's Customers were so used to, I mean, what has it been, 11 years since the iPhone came out, and we're used to being able to get things when we want it. We can buy with one click. In yesteryear, if you didn't know how to spell a word, you'd be like, Mom, how do you spell whatever? What would she say? Look it up in the dictionary, right? Now we just ask Alexa. You might, yeah, right? then you might snarkily say, well, if I knew how to spell it, I could look it up. That's exactly. We all said that, didn't we? <laughs> when, our, when our parents said that, you know, eat all your food, they're starving children in Asia, I would say, name three Yeah. What are their names? Yeah, right. Tell me. So, But much of it is being driven by changing expectations, more impatience. And I ask audience, I said, do you find that your customers are a little more impatient, a little more demanding? And the answer is yes, but it's also in a B2B environment as well. If somebody is buying corrugated boxes to ship their products, there are a multitude of options overseas and otherwise, online and otherwise, to fill that need those who are extraordinarily easy to do business with have that competitive advantage. So I don't know that I'm seeing any trends specifically more for B2B or B2C, but I think the trend is that they've been other focused. And here's what I mean, otherwise occupied, let me put it that way. We went through a really challenging downturn in the economy 10 years ago, right? Nine, 10 years ago. And so the focus has been on cost savings and cost cutting and now we're in an age of disruption and that disruption is just, there's people for everybody listening right now, there's somebody sitting in a room trying to figure out how to do your business differently or better or faster or more facilitated. They're looking to disrupt, not because they have animosity towards you. They're just trying to support their family too. There's some people saying, how do we completely redo it? How do we take existing infrastructure and change an industry? And I guarantee you that the taxi drivers around the world didn't anticipate that every car around them would be a taxi, right? With Uber or whatever. So what it has done is we're realizing that we have to find a way to create some real competitive advantage. And so the shift has been towards recognizing the value of customer experience as a meaningful differentiator because, and Jim, you you went through this, I mean, in your years teaching as well, we have been what we call for generations product centric. Our expertise as business owners was in our product and our service. We got really good at it. We knew how to explain it. We knew how to differentiate it. And our goal was to sell that product to as many people as possible and gain market share. Well, what happens when those products and services become commoditized? When we used to talk about, listen, our quality is higher. Well, if you're selling a dishwasher, your quality isn't higher. It's likely on a par with 30 other models. So we've traditionally marketed our businesses based on being product centric, being really good at what we do. But when things become commoditized and they're available everywhere, and even in their cases where good enough at a better price point than you is a better choice, we struggle to differentiate on the product itself. Not that the product is unimportant, but as consumers, we expect the products to be great. The shift has been from product-centric to customer-centric, and it doesn't mean customer-focused. I just wrote an article in CEO World Magazine about don't confuse customer-centric with customer-focused. It's not about being focused on the customer. Whereas product-centric, our expertise was on the product and customer-centricity, our expertise is on our customers. We know more about them than we ever have their buying habits, way beyond demographics and psychographics, their life, their preferences, their fears and hopes. And being customer-centric means let's focus on a customer and say, how many ways can we impact their life? How many ways can we feed them and sell to them? And the advantage of customers over products is customers have memories and customers have preferences and customers have a lifespan. And they're not mutually exclusive. You can be really good at your product. But people are losing market share because others are coming up with products and services that are nearly as good or every bit as good and just charging less. So companies are scrambling to find where's our advantage coming from if we can't be crazy innovators. And many are recognizing that you can do it through knowing your customers much more deeply and impacting their lives in much more profound ways. David, I think this really important point And it
0: gets to a few things that we know to be true in the way that our brains work and the way that organizations work as well. One of them is that people tend to talk about the things that they have the most confidence in, that they feel they know the best. And so it's very easy for, as you say, know a whole lot about our products and our solutions and our services, that that's what people talk about. So it winds up being kind of a self-absorbed product-centric message because your frontline people don't know enough about the customers, that, that data hasn't been shared with them. I think that whole area that you discussed there, get more customer knowledge and share that on the
2: inside is really, really important. Well, and it's, it's like your book. I mean, there is a science behind this. Why do people behave? And the more we understand why people buy and people behave the way they do, the better we can tailor our message and our research and development and our product offerings to serve them better now historically we've done it through demographics and psychographics we didn't have anything better but we know that all 25 to 34 year old asian men don't prefer the same beer but demographics would suggest that they do but we can through big data and predictive analytics here's what they've done here's what these people live in this part of the country or this kind of an income and really tailor that. Plus, there's amazing ways to look people up online. Our colleague Sam Richter is a wonderful process to help salespeople and others know more about their customers than their competitors. Create an almost unfair advantage in being able to tailor your pitch by you know everything about them, what they've done, what their plans are, what's next, where their successes have been, that they're very customer centric that we can offer them what we have in a way that really, really resonates with them. David, this being a podcast
0: generally focused on messaging and leadership, I want to talk about, let you have the opportunity to make a little bit of a counterpoint to some of what's going on today when it comes to messaging and leadership. And sure. there was a story in your book about the aquarium in Denver, where you live, and to relate that. There was You have a chapter titled I love the uh, the chapter title. It's not what you want to say; it's what we want to hear. And you have a little bit different view on some things that are in vogue today, like follow your passion and tell customers oh. your why. Oh.
2: Um, so, do you want to offer your thoughts yeah, sure, on I that, will. here that can go astray. When you say that, I, I threw up in my mouth a little bit. If uh, <laughs> you'd like to take a sip of water, you know what? It's just oh, I just and I, it's not that I'm not touchy-feeling. I'm a very sensitive guy, but this the customers need to know your why. No, they don't. They need to know their why and how you meet their needs. I'm not gonna buy from somebody to help them live their life's mission. It doesn't mean that if there's a great story behind these baskets they were made in Africa. I love it, it's a great story. But there was a guy who was trying to get me to represent him and do some work together and he was selling these mobile power generators. And they were solar and they were clean and they were environmentally friendly and they were green and all of this other stuff. And they were selling to people in remote locations, remote power festivals and things like that. And the first three pages of his website over and over is just about his mission to save the planet. And I asked him, I said, are you a not for profit? He says, oh, no, 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 no. We're selling these power generators. I said, then why are you talking about all of this green and saving the planet? He goes, well, that's why I started the company. And I said, you know that. 90%, maybe 80% of the people who buy from you will not have that as their priority. But their money spends just as good. Their job, my job as a consumer, is not to help him live his life's mission and save the planet. But I would love his remote power generator because when my son and I go camping, it's not that stuff is unimportant. But the people who have on their websites the our story, unless you have a restaurant with recipes from the old country, we don't care about your story. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be, that's not why we buy. We buy because of what problem of ours you solve. And maybe your problem just is that you need a bigger snowblower than Phil down the street, but your story and all this stuff about you and the people—it's I, I, even as a professional speaker, I get, I get people will come up to me and they want to share their story, and I survived cancer, and I'm not denigrating people who've gone through this, and I quit my job and I decided that day I'm going to spend my life helping people reconnect with joy and blah. blah, blah. And I said, okay, first of all, congratulations on what you've done. But you got to know that there's nearly 40 million people have survived cancer. And if I'm a meeting planner, I'm not writing you a check for $10,000 for you to have a cathartic experience on my stage. I'm not writing you a check for $8,000 for you to live your life's mission. But I will write a check for you to help develop my leaders and increase my sales and guard against disruption and increase the efficiency of my staff. It's not about you. Not that what you do is unimportant, it's wonderful. Tell your family, tell your friends. They don't need to know your story. They need to know how what you do will benefit their life and We're seeing, even from a marketing perspective, some of that verbiage shifting towards that other focus. Now, Jim and I, you you and I remember this exercise that's been around for 40 years. And you say, look at all your promotional materials, everything you have written about yourself, your sales sheets, your brochures, your website pages, print everything off and take a yellow highlighter in one hand and a green highlighter in the other. And everything you say about yourself, you highlight in yellow. Everything you say about what you do and your credentials and what all in yellow, but everything you say about your customers, highlight in green. Their problems, their challenges, their challenges in their marketplace, and their competitor. And there's always more yellow than green because we love to talk about ourselves. Not to say that our credentials are unimportant, they are, but it has to be about them. There's so many people out there telling everybody, you have to tell your story and they have to know your why. I don't think so. I think it doesn't mean that your family and others wouldn't love to hear your why, but that's not why they buy. It's not. They buy because it helps them. Focus your messaging on them. There was a uh, study I saw
0: most popular, most effective print advertising during the 1970s and 80s. The word that dominated those was you. And then a, a similar study about a year and a half ago of Facebook ads, the most effective ads were dominated with the word you. So that's pretty timeless advice and it's easy to lose track of it. You being in Denver, David, I thought the story of the aquarium
2: um, um, if you could share that briefly, was well, it really share real real Years ago, a team had decided to build the first Denver aquarium. It's really the only aquarium in this part of the country between maybe Chicago and Los Angeles or San Francisco. And a team, of course, oftentimes it's the people who are passionate, the true believers got behind it. And they got huge funding. It cost about $120 million. And it was some research scientists and they got all these corporate sponsors and they built this amazing aquarium. It was literally stunning. They had above water exhibits. They had tigers. It was amazing. And so on the day they opened, we were in line. Our kids were younger and we went through it. And I was probably 20 minutes through it. I turned to my wife and I said, they'll be out of business in three years. Well, they were out of business in two years. And what was really clear was what they wanted to teach us. And there were exhibits about how we're damaging the environment. And there were exhibits about what will happen if pollution does this. And what was very clear was what they wanted us to know. What they didn't care to ask us is what we wanted to see. And what we wanted to see was cool fish. And we wanted to have fun with our families. And instead, we felt like we were being indoctrinated. And it was very educational, but it wasn't fun. And it was wonderful for field trips. But what they didn't get was repeat visits because we were being hit over the head with a message that was important, but we thought we were buying entertainment and they were trying to change the world and save the planet. And there was a disconnect. And so what cost about $120 million was sold to Landry's Seafood House for about $12 million. And now it's known as the downtown aquarium. And yes, there's restaurants inside and no, you can't pick fish that you want to eat from the aquarium, but it all of a sudden it's fun again. And they bought it for a bargain, but there was a disconnect. And it was clear what they wanted to say, but their job was not, we weren't buying indoctrination. And I believe in all of this stuff. I think it's all very, very important. I just wanted to have fun with my kids. And it wasn't very fun. And they failed. Message managers,
0: this is David Avron. His latest book, which has recently come out, can recommend, called Why Customers Leave and how to win them back. David is a big-time keynoter. He has a podcast, writes stuff all the time.
2: David, how can our listeners keep up with you and buy your stuff? Absolutely. If you want to learn more about me and my speaking and the consulting work I do, go to visibilityinternational.com. And all my books, it's not who you know, it's who knows you, and Visibility Marketing. Everything, of course, is on Amazon. And it's also an audiobook which is great. So your Alexa can play it through their system, Kindle and everything else. And I'm one of those guys that actually responds. So if you uh, have a question for me and want to reach out, it's just David at DavidAverin.com, A-V-R-I-N, David at DavidAverin.com. And I sit on airplanes and hotel rooms and I respond and happy to talk to you. And so, Jim, great great opportunity to to chat. We'll have to find uh, new opportunities. You can come on my podcast, which is called The Very Visible Business, and we'll continue our conversation there.
0: I look forward to it. And by the way, all you frontline hosts and hostesses at great hospitality brands around the world, if David Averin needs to check out half an hour later, it's a really good (laughs) idea. It'd be great. Hey, David, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
2: Thank you, friend. Have a great day.
0: Thanks, message managers, for joining the podcast. You don't want to miss an episode, so be sure to subscribe. And if you haven't done so already, please take a brief moment to rate and review us on your way out. Five stars are the ones that matter that makes it easy for other professionals to find us and join the fun. If you find these conversations useful in your business, then I can recommend another free weekly resource. The Message Manager Memo is a brief weekly email with practical tips and examples. You'll actually enjoy seeing it in your inbox. It only takes about 10 seconds or less to sign up on my website, jimcar.com. That's K-A-R-R-H. I would be happy to connect with you on LinkedIn, and you can follow me on Twitter at Jim Carr. And let's talk directly. Keep the comments and questions coming. You might have suggestions for the podcast or want to bounce a messaging idea. Perhaps your organization needs to sharpen its message and equip more people with the tools and confidence to share it widely and consistently. Perhaps you know of an association or company that would be a great fit to have me visit as a professional speaker. You can email me directly at jim at jim And set up a time to talk by phone if you like my mobile number is also on the website i try to keep it simple three steps no pressure you and i have a phone or zoom conversation for a few minutes we assess what it is you're trying to accomplish and whether i can help and if so then we begin to put together a plan as always i appreciate your time and enthusiasm for letting your world know about what it is you do and the value you offer until next time message managers Thanks for joining the conversation.
1: Thanks for joining us on the Manage Your Message podcast with Jim Carr. You'll find show notes and other resources at managermessagepodcast.com and jimcarr.com. Please help us serve you and other message managers by subscribing to, rating, and reviewing this podcast and connect with Jim on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jim Carr. Until next time, We hope your business message is shared well and often.